Welcome to the Angel Investors Network podcast, the first national angel group founded online in 1997, dedicated to perpetuating free enterprise, capitalism, and supporting the American dream. In addition, Angel Investors Network is the organization behind the powerful Mastermind Investment Club, dedicated to harnessing the philosophy of a mastermind to increase success with their investment portfolio. Laura Rubenstein is a social media and marketing strategist and founder of the Social Buzz Club. On the podcast, Laura brings together successful entrepreneurs to share with you how they grow their business, and you can too. And now, here's your host, Laura Rubenstein. Well, welcome once again to the Angels Investor Network podcast. I'm Laura Rubenstein, and we are here once again helping you move your business startup to the next level. And I'd like to welcome Christopher Lockhead to our podcast today. Hi, Christopher. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here. And just as a little way of introduction to you, Christopher Lockhead is a former three-time Silicon Valley public company CMO, and his last company, Mercury Interactive, sold to HP for $4.5 billion. He's been an advisor, a coach, board of director to over 50 Silicon Valley venture startups, and just launched his brand new book, Niche Down. And I have one more final claim to fame for you right now, and I'm sure you're going to get into a lot more of it, but your podcast is hugely successful, Legends and Losers, and also the offshoot of that, Six Minutes of Legendary. So welcome, Christopher. Thank you, Laura. I'm stoked to be here with you. Yeah, I'm stoked because you, I know, have a lot of wisdom that I'm just going to do my best to eke out of you. But I'd like to always set the stage with understanding where you came from, where you grew up, and what was your childhood like? Well, I grew up in Montreal, Canada, uh, born of a family of Scottish descent. Uh, my grandfather came over after World War II because he couldn't find a job in, uh, in Scotland and, and found a uh, kind of a factory job in Montreal. And um, I kind of struggled a lot in school. I was really good at the creative stuff and math was over for me in grade three. And so by the time I was 18, Laura, I got thrown out of school for being stupid. Um, I found out at 21 that I have dyslexia and various other forms of four or five other different what today we call learning differences. But at 18, I found myself um, out of school um, in a manual labor job. And really, my choices were um, I could shave men's testicles for a living or I could start a company. Um, My mother had gotten me a job as an orderly in a hospital where she worked. And so uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I always felt there was something more for me. And so um, at 18 years old, I became what you might call a small e entrepreneur and a buddy of mine and uh, named Jack. We hung out a shingle and we set up a company to help people um, embrace what at, the, what at the time was the personal computer boom, doing training and consulting. And, and that's how I got started. Wow. So when you got, how did you shift from that to bigger company work? Yeah, so ultimately my first company failed and, um, you know, as, as is somewhat the case. And so dusted myself off. I ended up uh, joining another startup as the first kind of sales guy there and did that sort of stuff and ultimately started another company, which I sold to a U.S.-based, um, Silicon Valley-based software company in 1996, sort of just as the internet was really starting. Mm. Um, and so it was It was really at that point where, you know, I had thrashed around in the Canadian technology startup scene, and uh, I had a successful uh, kind of small um, consulting business at that time. 
And, um, and at 26, 27 years old, I found myself the head of marketing for a publicly traded software company in, um, in Silicon Valley. And I've been uh, in and around Silicon Valley ever since. Wonderful. So what do you like best about being in and around Silicon Valley? You know, this may sound corny, Laura, but I, I believe in the American dream. I've lived it. You know, I, I had a paper route from the time I was about 10 years old. Uh, I grew up very modestly, if you, if you will. Uh, we struggled a lot, a lot of love in my family, but, you know, we were far from wealthy. And um, I was able to, through being an entrepreneur and through coming to California and Silicon Valley, really design a life that, um, that I have loved. You know, I've worked with amazing people. I've helped be, you know, helped been part of a, a handful of great companies and categories. And um, candidly, I wake up every day feeling like the luckiest guy in the world. And so for me, um, entrepreneurship was not a way up. It was a way out. And, and once I had achieved that, being able to be in Silicon Valley, to have relationships with entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and technologists and marketers and all the amazing people here, you know, it's an incredible thing. And today I just, I mean, I feel very fortunate. I think we are at the most exciting time in history to be uh, an entrepreneur, to be a startup, to be involved with technology. Um, and I just feel incredibly fortunate to be where I am and to be able to play in that world. Well, having started like kind of at the beginning of this boom, you've seen a lot of companies fail, a lot of companies succeed. You've worked with a lot to help them. So what common mistakes do you see companies making along the way? Great question. Yeah, we, we like to say on Legends and Losers, there's going to be a lot of, we, we invented a word, Laura, to make it, to make failing sound a lot better than it is. <laughs> okay, what so, is it? We call it losery. There's going to be lots of losery along the way. Nice. <laughs> um, here's, I think, the biggest seminal mistake. Many of us think the best product wins. Most of us make a unquestioned, unexamined, undiscussed, unthought about decision to build what we hope is a legendary product and a legendary company to deliver that product. And then we believe that when we put that in the world, ta-da, it'll be awesome. And I've seen a lot of CEOs say, look, what we really need is, Laura, we need a really good demo on our homepage. Because if they could just see our carbodingulator, they're all going to beat a path, right? It's the, it's the build it and they will come model. Right. And um, as you know, nothing could be further the truth than the truth. And so the legendary entrepreneurs, the legendary executives instead of just building a great company and a great product, they do a third thing. They build a legendary category. And the most successful individuals and the most successful companies uh, are known for a niche that they own. And designing that niche and um, making, making sure that you are viewed as the person who broke or took new ground, and therefore the people who come after you should be compared to you as opposed to you entering an existing market category or niche and having everybody, uh, having you be compared to everybody else. That's the fundamental error. And um, your niche or your category is truly the single point of failure for your company. Mm. Say more about that. Like, how do you build this legendary category and what would cause it to fail? Well, so I think there's two things. Number one, the, the niche or category has to exist. So no market, no marketing, right? 
Now, the mistake that we make is we get taught in business school that what you do is you you attack a market with, and you hear this a lot in, in the venture world, with a big TAM, you know, total addressable or total available market. And on its face, it makes sense. Why would you launch a company and or a product into a category or a market niche that doesn't exist? That sounds mental. Well, um, you know, Jim Getz, who's uh, one of the leading partners at Sequoia Capital, who, as you know, is one of the top VC firms in Silicon Valley, he says, if the category exists, Sequoia doesn't invest. So legendary investors, just like legendary, and by the way, for the record, Jim is number one on Forbes Midas list, and he has been for the last several years. Um, and so legendary investors, just like legendary um, entrepreneurs, understand that when you, when you design the niche, you are creating demand where demand did not exist before. When you compete or you do marketing or you do branding, you're competing for existing share. And here's the really big aha as to why that's so um, such a big mistake. For my first book, Play Bigger, we analyzed every venture-backed startup founded from 2000 to 2015. And we looked at how they grew in value, whether it was um, pre-IPO valuation increases or post-IPO market cap increases. And we built this big data store, and we asked the data, what percentage of total market cap in the niche, in the cat market category, goes to the leader or the company you could think of as the category queen or the category king. It turns out in tech, that number is 76%. So we live in a winner-take-all world. And the big aha is if you're the company designing the niche, you have a shot at being the category queen. If you're, if you're playing in somebody else's niche, by definition, you're fighting for 24% of the economics. Legendary investors understand that. That's why Jim says what he says. So what you're really looking for, as crazy and as counterintuitive as it sounds, is you're looking for $0 billion market niches to go attack. Wow. So how do you figure out this legendary category? Yeah, it's a great question. The first big aha is, you know, you, you try to unpack, well, what did the legends do? You know, what did Sarah Blakely at Spanx do? And what did Henry Ford do? And what did Steve Jobs do? And we've even analyzed for niche down, we analyzed a lot of small e-entrepreneurs. Um, can I give you a simple example, one that I heard of recently that I just, I just love? Love to hear it, yes. So my wife, Carrie, comes home last weekend, and uh, she was out for the day doing a whole bunch of stuff. And so she was telling me about her day. And, um, and she said, oh, and I had this really good lunch. And I said, oh, yeah, baby, what'd you have for lunch? And she said, I had a sushi-rito. And I said, a what? And she said, a sushi-rito. Have you, have you had a sushi-rito, Laura? I think I actually have. <laughs> and so to me, this is a great example. If you and I were to start a sushi restaurant, what most entrepreneurs do is, you know, let's say maybe you were the chef and I was the front guy or vice versa, whatever. I don't know anything about the restaurant business. But what most restaurateurs, like most entrepreneurs, do is they say, well, first we're going to have amazing sushi, right? You got to believe that your sushi is really good. And then we're going to pick like a great location and we're going to have great wait staff and maybe we'll have snazzy uniforms and we'll try to create some kind of a great experience inside the restaurant. And then we'll open the door and we'll do what most entrepreneurs do, which is pray that our awesome sushi and our awesome experience carries the day. Well, the Sushi Rito folks didn't do that. And as you know, restaurants are probably the biggest single failing category overall of, of um, startup. 
they pulled a classic niche down, which is they saw the problem from a unique perspective. So categories get created when new problems get identified and evaluated and, and evangelized. So the Sushi Rito guys looked at it and said, well, we're trying to solve a problem called how do you take sushi to go? Well, the traditional paradigm, how it had been already solved is you got a plastic thing like a pop-up thing and you shove all the sushi in it and you know it makes if you try to eat that in the car it makes a mess and then you got all this plastic packaging and it's just you know it's not the takeout sushi experience is generally not a good one so they invented this whole new niche of restaurant where they take the concept of a burrito and the concept of sushi and they put them together and ba-bang you have awesome sushi to go and now there's seven or eight locations and the company's thriving as opposed to if we had started Laura and Chris's sushi restaurant, you know, we would have been probably unsuccessful, right? We, we would have had no differentiation. And so legendary companies, whether it's, it's Facebook, uh, we talk about how big companies at that level do it or how small entrepreneurs like Sushi Rito do it, they identify a problem that, is, that they look at from a new perspective or maybe a problem that most people didn't know they had and they evangelize that problem. And when the world agrees with you that your problem is urgent and important, they demand the solution. And most entrepreneurs get it backwards. They pound the table and go, solution, 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 right? And not realizing that the world doesn't buy a solution unless it identifies with a problem. Wow. So what I heard you say in there was that this is not just for the large company. If you want to start, you know, like a lot of people want to start just a average company maybe. Um, and they want it to grow to some substantial, but it doesn't have to be the largest, but you still want to have this new category, this legendary category. Is that, are you advocating that for all businesses all across the board? Absolutely, because if you're not designing your own niche, by definition, you're playing somebody else's game. Somebody, see, the way every market category works got designed, either intentionally or accidentally. There's a reason that, you know, um, uh, flat screen TVs are 150 bucks and high-end sunglasses are 300 bucks. And you look at it on its face and you go, hmm, one's a piece of high-end technology that talks to satellites in space and the other's a piece of plastic that sits on your face. And if you were an alien and you didn't know any better and you said, hey, which one is 300 bucks and which one's 150 bucks, I-, I would certainly guess that it was the TV that was the more expensive product. And so... Category design is all about teaching the market how to think about a problem and a solution, how to value it in exactly the way you want. And when the world accepts your definition, oh, sushi to go in a whole new way, sushi rito. Or in the case of um, uh, Mark Benioff at Salesforce, arguably the greatest B2B category designer of the last 20 years, he says, don't install software on your servers. Run it in this thing called the cloud and let me manage it for you. Well, listen, I was around in 1998. That sounded like the stupidest idea in the history of enterprise technology. And everybody said, oh, there's no CIO in the world. That li- oh, yeah, just, just give me your customer data, your forecast data, your salesperson data. We'll, we'll, just, we'll run all that on our system. Everybody said it was going to fail. And Benioff, like all legendary category designers, taught the world how to think in exactly the way he wanted with a provocative and engaging point of view about a problem and therefore a solution. And, you know, as a result, he built the largest phallic symbol west of the Mississippi. (laughs) There you go. So what is the best way to teach the world how to think about your product service and that they need it? 
Well, actually, the thing to do is to not teach them about your product or service. The E in CEO stands for evangelist, and what legendary category designers do is they evangelize the problem, not the solution. So if you, if you go to Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, you know, who we feature in our new book, she evangelizes this notion that um, uh, what you're doing is you're creating a, a backdrop for an amazing painting to hang off of. Right. And in order to do that, you have to create the right canvas, so to speak. Right. And her product, most people in the tech world, by way of example, would have called Spanx a girdle 2.0. You know, 2.0 is what we throw after something where we have no idea what we're talking about. She didn't do that. She said Spanx was a new category of undergarment called shapewear. Girdles had been around for centuries. Shapewear was a brand new category. And once the world saw things the way she did, bam, she became the youngest person in American history to become a self-made billionaire. And what I would posit to you is it's the category that makes the company, not the other way around. The reason Spanx brand is so powerful is because Spanx is the category designer of a whole new type of undergarment called shapewear, just in the way Sushi Rito is with Sushi on the go. Wow. So if we want to evangelize the problem, not the solution, where should somebody start? Great question. Well, there's two places I think that make a lot of sense. One of them is uh, we call them Frodo's for short, the from twos. So if you look at the world the way it is today and you say, um, I don't want it to be this way. I have a vision for the future that's meaningfully different. So a simple example that I can relate to is um, uh, Reed Hastings, the founder and category designer at Netflix, right? In the beginning, the paradigm, the way that category worked, so to speak, was we drove to the video store with our family. We fought on the way about what we were going to rent. We showed up at the video store. They didn't have what we wanted. We returned something that we already had. We probably paid a late fee for that. When they didn't have what we wanted, we now have to argue with each other all over again, talk to the sweaty, zitty kid behind the counter, blah, blah, blah. And then we rent, you know, uh, Harry Met Sally for the 14th time. And then we leave, right? And so we, and Blockbuster with, you know, all due respect to them, became one of the fastest growing companies in American history at the time. He comes around and says, no, no, no. We're going to move the world from that way to a whole new way. So you could imagine writing a list of every component of the way the category called video rentals worked. Reed reimagines the problem of how do I get a video to my house? And originally he does it with a website in the, in the mail. And of course, today we stream it over the web. And so you got to get really clear about the way that it is. And we characterize those as the froms. And then you take all of those attributes of the way that it is and you take your vision and you make a list of the way you want it to be. Those are the twos. And then legendary entrepreneurs create what you could think of as a powerful and engaging point of view. You know, in the case of Benioff, he said, no software. And those words are responsible for tens of billions of dollars of market cap. And to this day, Benioff pounds the table, no software, no software, no software. He's been saying it for 20 years because he understands, like all natural category designers, that the bigger and the more urgent the problem, the more money people will spend. The other thing I would say to you about it, Laura, is when enough of the world that you care about sees things the way you do, they, they via the POV, the point of view, they flip the Frodo's. So the minute you understand you can go to a website, type in all your favorite movies, and they just show up in your mailbox, 
You say, why would I ever freaking drive to a blockbuster again? And so when the world gets the problem and therefore the solution the way the category designer does at scale, that's when a new niche really evolves. And that's what positions the company to dominate the new niche. Wow, beautiful. It's so exciting to hear this new paradigm that you've really immersed yourself in. Did you figure it out or did you have some mentors? How did you get here? Uh, yes and yes and yes. And mentors and collaborators and you know, as a young man, I, I didn't have any kind of a formal education, so I read a lot. I still do read a lot, and it's challenging for me as a dyslexic, but I, I consume a tremendous amount. Uh, I never thought I would be the author of two books uh, as a dyslexic. That's, you know, a whole other thing. So, yes, I read a lot, and, and certainly, you know, David Ogilvy was absolutely one of my heroes, Ogilvy on advertising, all the recent Trout books, you know, incredible uh, I'll never forget reading uh, Jeff Moore's uh, Crossing the Chasm the first time and just thinking, oh, my God, you know, how incredible. And, and, you know, a lot of other books along those lines over the years. And so there was a lot of that. And then there was early I understood I myself as an individual and the companies that I was working with and or for, I didn't want us to be compared to anyone. I intuitively understood that every legendary person and or company shares some key attributes. They're original. They take or break new ground. They are unique. The reason virtually everybody loves Bob Marley is because he's the category designer of reggae. And, you know, I think about it a lot and you sort of say, well, who would you rather be, Bob Marley or the 47th reggae band? And look, there's, there's hundreds, probably thousands of great reggae bands. But when somebody says reggae, we all think Bob Marley. When, you know, uh, what made Picasso Picasso was not the paintings. It was the fact that he designed a new niche of art. He's the category designer of cubism. And it's only when cubism takes off that he takes off. And this is a big sort of aha is that the, the niche makes the brand, not the other way around. And so, look, I, I began to play with these ideas early. I, I was somebody who didn't fit in. You know, there's a lot of people in the world who fit in. Those of us who don't fit in can't find our place. We have to make our place. So it's been a personal sort of challenge and mission of mine. And then I began to realize from a business perspective, it was the people who taught the world to think about new things that really created whole new market opportunities and were best positioned to succeed in them. And so... The bottom line is I've been playing with this, trying to read about this, trying to collaborate with others, trying to do it as a CMO, trying to do it as an entrepreneur, you know, for 30 years. So do you think that someone who's passionate about an idea, about the, a new business, about something they want to bring out in the world can do, do that, create their own category? Do you think that's like inherent? They just haven't engineered it that way? Yes, I think everybody can learn how to do this. I think the people that have historically done it, Laura, have done it intuitively. They sort of understood, hey, I'm not going to market myself. I'm not going to market my company or product. I'm going to market a problem. I'm going to create a unique, uh, whether they use category or niche or genre or whatever, or, or sector, whatever way they might have thought about it. They you know, somehow, Sarah Blakely intuitively understood she couldn't be positioned as a girdle or she'd be effed, so to speak. Uh, and, and that's what Benioff understood. And obviously Jobs and, 
and and so did Henry Ford, and, 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 and. And if you look in the music world, you look in the art world, you look at politicians, you look at scientists, um, you know, Craig Ventner understood that, you know, and he, he ultimately mapped the human genome. You know, he positioned himself proactively. One of our mantras around here is you can either position yourself or be positioned. And the legends teach the world how they want them to think about them or their company or their product or their brand in a unique way. Masterful. Um, loving this. This is so huge, especially for new arising entrepreneurs and people, investor, investors as well for the places they're going to invest in. So what is, um, I know you've given us a lot of advice, but what is the best advice you've ever received? Um, this is going to sound trite probably, but um, to be yourself. You know, and the way I would express it today is to follow your different. We live in a world that teaches us to be the same. We live in a world that teaches us to color inside the lines. Uh, we live in a world that says um, uh, blend in. And most of all, we live in a world that says if we're going to be successful, we need to be better than the next person. If you want to be a great lawyer, you know, you take the LSAT and you do better than everyone else. The truth is it's being different that makes the difference. If you look at virtually every artist, musician, uh, uh, painter, scientist, entrepreneur, executive leader, politician that you can think about that you truly admire, chances are they weren't just sort of iterating on what had come before. Of course, we all do that to some degree. Of course we do. But the people we admire and respect the most fundamentally took a big leap and they decided to uh, listen to that voice in their head about what it is that makes them different. And they went out on a limb and they struggled and they challenged themselves to, if you will, follow that different. Beautiful. So when we think about growing a business, and what are the secrets behind your growth or the growth of the companies you've worked with? I think you got to get three things right. Um, and the way the way I, I like to think about it is, like, uh, in my head, I, I think of it as prosecuting the magic triangle. So at the very highest level, three things have to happen. And I think, by the way, they're all equal in weight. Number one, you got to have a legendary product. You know, particularly today, we, we live in a world where it's really hard to fool people anymore. You know, there was a point in time with certain products in certain categories, you could have a pretty you know, lousy product and, and maybe get away with it. I, I think that's less and less true over time, if not true at all anymore. So you, you truly have to have an amazing product that is a step forward, that is a breakthrough, that is high quality, etc. I think if you're going to be successful, um, you know, Brookings, MIT, point to one of the big failures of startups is inability to scale. And so I think you have to build a legendary company. So product, company, and that includes culture. That includes, of course, business model and ultimately, you know, infrastructure and, and systems and processes to scale globally. Um, so company, product, and then the third one is what we've been talking about, category or niche. And something legendary happens when amazing people are able to prosecute the right product, company, and category at the right time. And that's where you get Facebook and that's where you get Sushi Rito. So if you're going to start small, I mean, having the right product, make sure it's breakthrough, high quality. Um, do we have to have a lot of money is, to start it? You know, it's interesting. Uh, the short answer is no. Um, and, you know, I started in business with nothing. 
a lot of the top venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road that I know actually believe there's some amount of money that if you give it, you know, go beyond that, you're actually hampering a startup. And interestingly, I mentioned some of the data science research we did for um, my first book. Um, one of the things that we looked at in there, Laura, was um, how much money do category queen and king companies um, on average raise before the IPO and at the IPO? And interestingly enough, it's 100 pre-IPO and 100 post. So there's something very interesting about $200 million. That's if you're going to do the Sand Hill Road, Biggie Entrepreneur, Silicon Valley, dominate a big new tech category. The truth is, you know, I know a lot of Smalley entrepreneurs. I can tell you a story about a realtor who started with nothing and, you know, became a top 10 realtor in the country and, you know, retired uh, before his 45th birthday by niching down. And so, um, and I've worked with startups who have a, a launch budget of $5,000 and I've done, you know, marketing what we call lightning strikes that cost uh, 15 or $20 million. And so here's the real thing. You know that great Hugh, uh, Hugo, Ra Hugo Ross, um, um, uh, Victor Hugo quote, Which all one? the armies of the world are not powerful enough to stop an idea whose time has come. Yes. And so the question is, getting the world to see your idea the way you do and then using whatever techniques, whether it's, you know, a lot of money, if you've got it, that's great. But, you know, often the scrappy techniques are the ones that make an idea happen. And at its core, this notion of designing a category is all about making it your time. So what categories of marketing or channel marketing channels are you finding to be most effective to grow your business or the businesses you've worked with? So uh, the number one is everything that we've been talking about. At the high level, um, uh, category design, this ability to niche down and create your own space is fundamentally about the distinction between making new demand versus capturing demand. And all the idiots in the world who espouse that branding is the answer to everything are, are morons because when you're branding in the absence of category design, you're fighting for existing share. And if you're not the company who designed the category, you're by definition playing by somebody else's rules. So the highest level, it's everything we've been talking about. Now, at the practical and tactical level, I think one of the most exciting things about being a marketer today is this, you know, most people call it omni-channel world that we live in, right? We have options and we can play with things and we can experiment and we can measure things in a way that we were never able to measure, whether it's with, you know, search advertising or direct email in a way that we never could before and social and all this new stuff. And all the, you know, listen, I'm a fan of some of the legacy channels as well. And so if you want, we can get in some specifics around kind of marketing mix. But the exciting thing for me is this omni-channel world. And the other thing about it that's really cool is because our employees, because our customers, because our partners all have a digital voice, they can be part of our ecosystem in helping us be successful. And if we embrace that, then we sit ourselves at the center of an ecosystem that really supports and loves us and kind of multiplies what we're trying to do because they believe in our mission. Uh, of course, the corollary is true. If we're I was going to say a bad word that begins with A, but let, let's just say we're bad people and uh, our customers, prospects, employees, and ecosystem decide that, you know, we're, we deserve a good shellacking, then we're going to get it. Uh, and I find that very exciting. And so I like to play with all these new 
uh, digital technologies from a marketing uh, perspective. Yeah, I'd love to hear the marketing mix that you're playing with. So I think the biggest one is um, how do we enable our existing raving fans to um, to evangelize our mission? So the my friend Eddie Yoon, he wrote a great book called Super Consumers. You should probably have him on your podcast. Uh, he makes this great distinction. He says in business, there's two kinds of people. There are missionaries and there are mercenaries. And most people, of course, are mercenaries. And when the going gets tough, mercenaries tap out. Missionaries will crawl through flaming glass to make their mission happen. And so if you're somebody who centered your business on a mission to design and dominate a new category for good reason, and you can excite and motivate people with that mission, that's what's powerful. And then to get to your, your, your question, you know, I'll give you a simple example. As a podcaster, are your, are your listeners sharing your podcast on social media? If they are, chances are they believe in your mission, they believe in your category, and they want you to be the category queen, and they're supporting that mission. If they're not, then your podcast isn't resonating um, in a way that is speaking to people in a deep, powerful way. And so I like to think about all the social channels, whether, you know, LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever channel you want to talk about. And my number one thing is, how is the world that you care about multiplying the impact of what you're putting out? And if they are, then chances are you're putting out stuff of real value. And so I like to think about it in that context. And then, you know, what are the ways to encourage and support and motivate and, you know, tickle their ivories so that they they multiply um, whatever it is that you're trying to put out into the world? How do you do that with your podcast? I mean, I think the simplest way is to ask them and to be to be declarative about it. And then I think we try to do some technology things to make it easy. I mean, I don't know that it's anything revolutionary, but, you know, we've done some fun, play, play, playful experiments with chatbots, and we try to make all our stuff super shareable and super discoverable and all of those things. And so I don't know that I have any sort of revolutionary technology trick up my sleeve on that stuff. But, you know, I've, I've, I tend to um, work with younger people, Laura, so I bring in, you know, uh, like, for example, my buddy Nick Cullen. He's one of the top growth hackers in the world. Entrepreneur Magazine said he was one of the 27 CEOs under 27 to, to watch. And, and so uh, he came on my podcast. I kind of fell in love with him. And we started to do all this cool growth hacking. And he built a chatbot for us, and he did all that. And he's also co-producer of the Six Minutes of Legendary spinoff. And, and a lot of those ideas are his ideas. And so I think if you can find a legendary, doesn't necessarily have to be a young person, but you know somebody who's awesome in this example is at growth hacking or stunt marketing or somebody who's super creative and, and using the technology to drive viral adoption, uh, I think all those things are worthy of experimenting with. And there is a lot of trial and error, it seems like, in today's marketing. And you have to have the flexibility to, to try it and the willingness to go for it. And if you have, what I'm hearing from you is if you have the foundation of this legendary category and you're starting to put it out there in a way that, that people are get, paying attention and it's captivating them, then some of these tactics can really take off for you. That's right. I mean, you could have the greatest growth hack in history, but if you were undifferentiated, if you were playing a, a Me Too, we're better than them, we're a little faster, a little cheaper, whatever kind of an approach, you're, you're never really going to get anywhere, even if you had some you know, awesome thing that went viral on Facebook or Pinterest or whatever, whatever. 
Yeah, it'll die on the vine pretty quickly. So you obviously have a great foundation. Um, and so is there any of those tactical things that have been most effective that you, you've noticed? You know, here's the biggest surprise to me. You know, I've only been in this author or podcaster world for two years. So that it's sort of, it's kind of an interesting life experiment, Laura, to go from sort of being on one track, you know, being an entrepreneur, being a CMO and being in all that world for the better part of 30 years. And then, and then sort of doing a stop chain start. And all of a sudden I'm an author podcaster guy. And I, you know, I went from being relatively known in a very small niche a very small world, but, you know, hopefully with a little bit of respect, but to being a complete nobody, right? And and when I headed into this world, I thought, okay, well, there's all these cool podcaster tricks or author, digital, social. You know what? Here's what I've learned. Build your mail list. <laughs> you know, one of my buddies is Hal Elrod. He wrote the foreword to my new book. His book and, and the subsequent spinoffs of his book, The Miracle Morning, have been read by over 500,000 people. The Miracle Morning ideas are practiced in over 72 or 75 countries. It's just a massive, massive success. And I said to Hal, I said, you know, how did you build your audience? And he said, we got maniacal about building uh, our list. And I, I probably shouldn't say, but the size of his opt-in mail list is like when he told me the number, and these are not, he didn't buy lists and this is not any nefarious BS or no, 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 no. This is absolutely people who raised their hand and said, hey, Hal, love your book, love your speeches, love your podcast, keep me up to date with your stuff, right? It's such a giant number, I fell over. And so the, the sort of, on one hand, I love all the new omni-channel, digital, mobile, social, all this stuff. And at the end of the day, it's good old direct marketing. It's getting people to opt in and then delivering things of value, being consistent, being creative, and being smart. And if you can – look, my buddy uh, Eric Weinmeier, who's the first uh, blind man to summit Everest, famously said, the world doesn't need more bull****. And so if you're truly committed to putting out great stuff and then experimenting with all these channels, but ultimately providing an opportunity for people to opt in and say, hey, you know what? I think you're right. I'm in and you build a gigantic mail list of people who think you're awesome and want to consume your stuff. I've, what I've learned in the last two years, Laura, is it, you know, that was true 30 years ago, and it's true today. Wonderful. So you may have shared some of this, but maybe you can drill down a little bit. How do you get that message to stand out so people will say, I want in, in the crowded marketplace? I think we've talked a whole about, uh, a bunch about it. Here's the other thing I would add to it. Figuring out who you're not for is more important than figuring out who you're for and tell them. So, for example, in the beginning of my first book, at the end of the first chapter, we give you the top 10 reasons not to read the book. <laughs> uh, on Legends and Losers, the podcast, we're not like the average podcast. We're not a traditional interview show. We are a, what's called a dialogue podcast. It's a conversation. We don't even acknowledge the existence of an audience. And so we're very clear. Hey, listen, if you like prefabricated, canned, highly produced and edited BS interviews, don't press play. We're not for you. Our average episode is probably an hour and 15 minutes. Some of them are two hours. They're all pretty much over an hour. Well, 
If you go to podcast school, what they tell you in podcast school is the average American commutes for 22.3 minutes. And so your podcast should fit inside the average commute. And so you have all these formulaic BS interview podcasts who are 23.6 minutes. Well, if you think that's a good idea, we're the wrong podcast for you. And on and on and on. And so my point is knowing who you're not for is a huge part of niching down and being successful and, and, and sticking to that matters. You know, um, one of the entrepreneurs we feature in, um, in my new book, her name is Annie Morehauser. And Annie's the founder of an outfit here in the Monterey Bay area called uh, Annie Glass. And she's been the category queen of high-end, handmade glassware for 30 years. And she dominates her niche. She's the category queen. And everybody told her, you have to move manufacturing offshore so that you can scale up. Everybody told her she should take her designs, which people steal, and you should license them, and you should put them on beach towels and coffee cups and I don't know what. She's done none of those things. One of the things she taught me is that most companies over-diversify. And so there really is this thing that's powerful around figuring out what your true north is, what's the problem you solve, falling in love with that problem and being maniacal about that. And if you want that, great. And if not, go F yourself. We're not for you. Nice. Great advice. All right. So we have um, just an interesting question. What is your biggest marketing challenge now for yourself that you're facing? Funnily enough, as a three-time CMO, I don't know that I quite think about it that way because for me, writing and podcasting is a, is a labor of love and Yes, we do marketing. We don't spend that much on it, but of course we think about it and we have a great mail list and all that. Um, and so at a high level, I could say, well, you know, just like everybody else, how do we stand out? How do we evangelize our niche? And how do we get people to fall in love with what we're doing and, and become raving fans? So I don't know that it's any different than anybody else, but to be candid with you, um, I, I'm not obsessed with it the way I was when I was the CMO of a public company because... Um, you know, for me, writing and podcasting is volleyball after school. I'm incredibly stoked about the success of, um, you know, Legends and Losers and my books and all that. It's great. But I, I, I don't have the kind of, uh, you, know, you know, that you might if you were, if you were, you know, 26-year-old and, and if you don't make this quarter's revenue numbers, you can't pay the rent, right? It's, it's, uh, it's a bit different, I guess. Right. Well, as we wrap up here, I'd just like to know, is there anything that you've sh you haven't shared that you'd like to? Hmm. Yeah, there's lots. But uh, here's the big one. My dream is that um, more people than not understand the power in uh, the exponential value of what makes them different versus the incremental value of what makes them better. We live in a world where today, more than ever, we need exponential change. We're at the lowest level of recorded entrepreneurship in American history. Entrepreneurship is dying in our country. It, two years ago, the Wall Street Journal wrote a, a story that said the crisis in American entrepreneurship. If you read, and I highly recommend you do, the brand new book, Brookings Report that came out on entrepreneurship, if you're at all like me, it'll make you weep, and then it'll make you want to punch somebody in the face, and then it'll make you want to do something about it. And so we live in a world where at the macro level for economic reasons, for social reasons, for environmental reasons, uh, for scientific reasons, 
we need more exponential breakthroughs and less incremental breakthroughs. And at a personal level, Laura, what I would say to you is I'm somebody for whom entrepreneurship is not some theoretical discussion. I'm not somebody that had lots of money or had a Harvard or Stanford. Edge. I didn't have any of those things. Nobody was betting on Christopher. And so entrepreneurship for me was a platform for creating a life. And in an America where entrepreneurship is dying, not only do we have the macro problems with that, which are significant because the vast majority of, of new job growth comes from entrepreneurs. The vast majority of new patent and therefore innovation growth comes from entrepreneurs. That is being choked off at the core in America right now. We can talk about why if you care. But, but so for me, in a world where that's happening, in a world that teaches us incremental, in a world that teaches us better, my dream is that more people follow their different, play for the exponential, and really go for it and, and build you know, as corny as it might sound, legendary businesses and legendary lives. Absolutely. And I would like to know why we're in this crisis. Well, um, so I'm going to parrot to you a lot of the reading I've done, primarily based on publications from uh, the good folks at Brookings. MIT's done work in this regard and others. Um, there's a number of key factors. Number one, um, the cost of education is crushing us. If you graduate with a, even an undergraduate degree in this country, you have tens of thousands of, uh, in debt, and you have a high interest rate, and if you graduate from a major school, you know, a, a Harvard or a Stanford or something like that, it could easily be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, even if you're sort of an entrepreneurial person, it's hard to take risk when that's the situation. The other one, and I don't want to get political, but when your health care is tied to your employment and therefore the failure of your business means you and or your family doesn't have health care, that's a big effing problem. So those two are giant and they're, they're well documented by, um, by uh, research. Another one, and this one makes me want to punch a lot of politicians in the face, Laura. When the Brookings folks put out their most recent report in June of this year, they specifically called out American state governments and that our, our state governments have created a tax environment that advantages big companies and disadvantages uh, uh, startups. Mm -hmm. We've created a structural tax disincentive for being an entrepreneur in this country, and it's unconscionable. And why it is not part of the uh, election cycle discussions we're having right now in the United States makes me want to throttle people. But we as a country need to empower the entrepreneurial dream because the line that connects the entrepreneurial dream and the American dream is deeply, deeply connected, and we have got that effed up, and we need to uneff it. Um, and then I think the other thing, and this is now just my opinion, I think those of us, you know, I've come to a simple place in life, Laura. I think you're either proud of the problem or proud of the solution. I think those of us who've been lucky enough to be successful, those of us who are lucky enough to essentially have our base handled, you know, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I, I'm going to be okay, right? The question early in my life is, is Christopher going to make it? I answered that question. And so I think those of us who are generally okay and have, a, have anything to contribute back, and I, this, I know this sounds overly preachy, and I don't mean it quite so badly this way, but I'll say it anyway. I, I feel a moral obligation to do everything I can 
to empower, to excite, to, to, to stimulate, and, and, and to provide practical and tactical capabilities to make a difference for entrepreneurs um, in the U.S. and, you know, beyond, frankly. But I think it takes a lot to do that. And I think we, those of us who've been successful, have to stand up, have to start calling out our politicians, and have to start doing everything we can. Because if we don't, here's the problem. When one entrepreneur rises, she often takes her family, her community, sometimes a whole new category niche, and sometimes an entire industry with her. And when that doesn't happen, her dream, the family's dream, and the dream of all those people connected with her never happens. And that is going away in the United States, and we have to do something about it. And I know you are. And so I am grateful for all the wisdom you've shared. Um, we could go on. I have so many more questions. I am going to let you have your day back and let everyone else enjoy the, the wisdom that you've shared. Thank you for your generosity and for, um, you know, niching down. And everyone, check out the book. It's called Niching Down. Is that right? Niche Down. Niche Down. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Christopher. Thank you, Laura. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer.